Function room number 29. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The mathematics of symmetry. Hello, it's me, Colm O'Regan. The function room is back after a little summer break, and my guest this time is Pauline Mellon, Professor of Mathematics at UCD. She wanted to talk about symmetry, and I'm really glad she did. She brings me on a tour of maths, religion, biology, art, chemistry, AI, and of course, naturally, town planning. It's a real treat to listen to someone who knows a hell of a lot and is interested in finding out more. My name is Pauline Mellon and I'm a mathematician. I'm a professor of maths in UCD. Um, and so I do all of the stuff that, that happens in there. So I do research, I, I, I teach um, and um, various other bits and pieces. Yeah, you're, you're quite a big deal. You have a Wikipedia page, which is not, not many. Uh, did you put that? Who put that up for you? I, I have no idea who put it up, Colm. That was news to me. Uh, somebody else pointed it out to me. I don't know. It's done by somebody in the US and I have absolutely no idea who it is. But um, uh, does that is it? Do you think that it's nice when you like as a career, you create, um, you do research and somebody says, oh, that's. That's one of Dr. Mellon's, uh, that's Dr. Mellon's work. I think she deserves a Wikipedia page. Do you think, it, do you think it's an element of uh, mathematical fame? I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure I would go quite that far. <laughs> um, I, I know that I have been involved in the Irish Mathematical Society. In fact, I was the first uh, woman to be president of the Irish Mathematical Society. So it's quite possible that it's something from that. I haven't, but I, but I genuinely have no idea. Um, I'm a fairly kind of private individual, so yeah. I don't put an awful lot out there. So, um, but nonetheless, it's there and it's correct. So, <laughs> good. That's the most important thing. It's correct. Um, you are involved in mathematics as a long career of mathematics. So, the stuff you're doing is, by nature, I'm sure, very complex. But the thing you wanted to talk about uh, on in the function room is something that we, no matter what our aptitude or how far we go in maths, we all encountered at a very early stage, and that's symmetry. An amazing word with so many meanings. Why does the word symmetry mean a lot to you? Um, for me, I, I, I think it means a lot because, as you said, you can, you can actually explain the idea of symmetry. In fact, sorry, you don't even need to explain the idea of symmetry to a two-year-old. I mean, when they have those wooden blocks and they're trying to force the the round peg into the square hole or vice versa, they're coming up against manifestations of symmetry. So whether you're two or six or 16, um, so whether you're a specialist or whether you're a gardener or whether it really doesn't matter what you're doing, you cannot avoid symmetry. And it just so happens that symmetry is also has this very beautiful underlying mathematical structure. So I think for me, I first started thinking about symmetry. It does appear in my own research, but that's in a very kind of complicated, esoteric, if you like, setting as far as most people are concerned. Um, but the first time I really started thinking about this in a more general term was when my own kids were in primary school and I was asked to come in and, and um, give a little talk to them. Um, and I decided I just happened to, I don't know, was it coincidental or not, but I happened to notice that I tend to like um, these usually chunky necklaces, which have exhibit a lot of symmetry. 
And that was the point at which I kicked off for, I think it was second class and then third class. Kids were with very, very simple things, even something as simple as a very geometric necklace or something. You can begin to um, investigate the whole concept of symmetry and say a little bit even about the underlying mathematics behind it. And that for me is a lovely example of how we always we think it's abstract and we're like, what is X or what is Y? But that tangible visual thing is really important. And not just explaining it to second class, but I presume at all stages. I, I think I guess I crave being able to touch and see a thing when it comes to maths. Yeah, I mean, I've I mean, to be honest, then I, I later on, I've given um you know, little talks at various stages to kids in both primary and secondary school. So even for, uh, I have a teacher who every, pretty much every year takes his honours leave insert maths class in. And we often do bits and pieces in UCD to give them a morning of mathematics. And I found actually that I can almost do the same thing I did with the second year's primary school, second class primary school, but just at a different level. You're, you, you can actually present the same pictures and the same motivations, but you can just go a little bit more behind the scenes. So it symmetry seems to me this universal, almost manifestation of mathematics. And symmetry at its heart, can you explain what it is? I, I hear about invariance and all that kind of thing and why it's important. Just to get down to basics, if something's symmetrical, what does it mean? Well, I mean, if you go back to ancient times, the Babylonian times, 2000 BC, for them, the most beautiful, um, symbolically, religiously beautiful uh, uh, shape was the circle. Because um, just think if you, if you have a circle, a big you know circle made of whatever you like, and you could put your two hands on it and you could look, think of it as a big dial and you could rotate it. And you could rotate it by any amount and it's still the circle. It still remains the same. So if you think of that big circular dial and you rotate it by an amount, that rotation is, is called a symmetry of the circle. You've done something, but it hasn't changed it. And incidentally, the, the ancient Babylonians, um, the celestial bodies, that's um, they already ascribed spherical shapes to the celestial bodies because for them, um, the circle was that ultimate manifestation of symmetry because you can, if you like, rotate it by any amount um, and it stays the same. So mathematics looks then at it slightly differently. So we're looking at the circle as that shape, but this dial that you can turn by any amount, that amount, that angle, that's a mapping. It maps the circle onto itself. And what mathematics does is said, okay, we take the shape, but we're going to step away from the shape for a moment. And we're going to look at those mappings, the things you can do to it that doesn't actually change the shape. And that's where the mathematics comes in. So for example, if you took, um, if you took a beautiful flower petal, a beautiful flower, maybe with four petals, all distributed around the circle. So just four big petals. Then you could turn it by 90 degrees and it would stay the same or 180, it would stay the same or two, um, 270 or 360. So in that way, you have four rotations. So then what the mathematics does is says, okay, what's significant here are the four rotations. Now, if it's completely symmetrical, you can also do bits of reflections. You cannot, you also have four reflections, but that's the shift. The shift is when 
looking away from the shape that, that or the visual representation to look at the things you can do, we call those mappings, um, that don't change the shape. And then it's the study of those mappings that simplifies um, the structure, if you like, behind the scenes. And why is it important that the shape doesn't change? And you can almost see why it was important to the Babylonians. It's almost like, you know, man and woman lives and dies, but the circle is the same. And, you know, imagine why it might be a religious thing. For mathematicians, um, is the fact that it does, that it stays the same, does that mean that you can, that's your constant and then you can look at everything else around it? Or is there something fundamental about it, am I right in saying that's the word invariance? Is that is that the same? Well, as it yes, the yes. Same? I mean, we would call those transformations, transformations which keep the shape invariant. Invariant simply means not changing. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, the reason, I suppose, is that they're what's critical. So, for example, you might have two very different. So think of a snowflake and think of how complicated looking a snowflake can look. And then think of maybe so that often has symmetry of order six. In other words, you could do six rotations and um, but you can also get a flower with six petals. And, and actually, it turns out that those are those are essentially similar structures in many cases. And it's when you focus on the um, transformations or the things you can do, um, which allows you to see that actually the underlying structure is they can look very different. The manifestations can be very different, but actually the underlying structure can often be identical. And it's yeah. that underlying structure, for example, in biology or in chemistry that often determine the properties, the actual physical properties of a chemical compound or, or something. So it's that to some extent, mathematics is simplifying and saying, well, all of these things are coming from biology or chemistry or a snowflake or a flower or, or a pattern on an animal. But actually, they all have something very simple in common. OK, so it's it's looking at something that seems chaotic and then stripping out rotations and all that to find the fundamental structure. And then once you have that, then you can make some uh predictions or simplifications yes. or see how something yes. might change with time yeah. going go back to uh nature does based i mean i know obviously you're not um you're not a biologist uh or uh, an ecologist but from from looking at work in in uh in symmetry and does does nature like symmetry does it tend towards things that are reasonably foldable or is it something is it like you know the way things are round because that's the most efficient way or it's shaped by its surroundings what does nature shape things to be symmetrical How, what what do you think happens actually colin that's a really interesting question and i mean when we look i mean symmetry is everywhere in nature I mean, so whether, as I mentioned, the snowflake or the flowers, but there's these, I don't know if you ever get a chance, there's these little tiny um, one-celled animals um, that, that live in the bottom of our oceans, but they're tiny, one cell, one millimeter roughly, but their skeletons are made of silica. And these skeletons are what ends up in the bottom of the ocean and, and, and what we can see. And the shapes of these are absolutely incredible. The symmetric, beautiful shapes. And um, anybody could, they're called radiolara. 
radiolarans okay. were documented in the 19th century, but they have the most unbelievably symmetrically beautiful shapes designed on what are the five platonic solids almost. So nature, symmetry is coming everywhere in nature. It's, I recently, just looking, thinking about this podcast, uh, I even something that hadn't struck me before is even if you think about the way a four-legged animal, so your dog or a, or a rabbit or a horse, think of the way they move. For example, if you think of a horse, it's got four legs. And everybody who's done any little bit of horse riding will know that there's very big transitions in when the animal starts to move. They start to walk. Mm. And that's a very different experience than when they start to trot. You have to learn it differently. And after trotting, then there's another movement called um, canter, very different again, different, and then a totally different move, which is gallop. So there is just one animal and he's just walking and going, you know, doing something, you know, that we're so used to. And yet the patterns which arise, these four possible types of movements, you can see based on the symmetry of the legs and which legs hit the ground first and in which combinations that you have precisely these four types of movements for a horse. So even something as simple as the way a four-legged animal walks, there's really nice, simple studies done to say, well, you can have these types of movements. So, so it's, it's just, it, it's, it's everywhere. Um, so on the other hand, um, I don't know at what point to introduce this, but I was looking at, again, lots of things came up actually when I was just thinking about this podcast. And um, in 2021, 2022, a group of people, um, eight authors uh, produced a paper about evolution. I mean, we're all used to evolution these days that um, all of, of life progresses or changes over time. And these changes are brought about by random mutations. And um, the random mutations are what causes evolution. Um, but the, the principal premise of some of the work is to say, well, if the revolutions are genuinely random, how comes we're seeing so much symmetry? Yeah. I mean, uh, you don't expect the amount of symmetry we get in nature if it's just based on uh, randomness. And for many, um, for I mean, there's been a debate going on for many decades about this, but there's almost two steps in evolution. One, the, the, the step that we're most familiar with is a random mutation hits and it has some effect. So, for example, um, one of the things is called a, a preference or a survival bias. Just to, I also noted some recent research that female swallows, for example, female swallows will look at their male counterparts, the male swallows, and they'll disregard this, the male swallows whose tails are not as symmetric as <laughs> the more attractive um, male swallows with symmetric tails. So there's for the swallows, you can immediately see there's a survival bias. There's yeah. a reproductive bias for the male with the most symmetrical tail. So this is called the survival of the fitness, the one which has the most symmetry. The female prefers it. Uh, so there's some kind of bias there increasing this trait over time. But there's another step as well is that the, the first step is what mutations happen in the first place. And there's been a new discussion 
um, recently and new, lots of research. I discovered one paper, but then when I start exploring, I see lots and lots of papers. And it's this, it's called the arrival step, the arrival of variation, what mutations happen in the first place. And they've begun to think, and I can say something about this again later because it's related to other research on AI and even on architecture, but that this first step now, they're beginning to think that in fact, there's a symmetry bias in already at that point. So, and we, we, if, 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 in case I forget to get into that later point, so the, so th- something is already symmetrical, a random mutation is, uh, might, might be different to what's already there, but within it, it makes symmet- it may make symmetrical sense for its own axis. I know I'm being clumsy with words, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. an appendix rather than a different book kind of thing. Well, the way I guess it's described, I mean, the randomness is often described, you know, with the monkey sitting at the computer typing random things. And obviously, if they if you have enough monkeys typing on enough keyboards for an infinite amount of time, eventually you reproduce the work of Shakespeare. I mean, there's a positive probability of that. Well, um, the way um, they're beginning to think that uh, evolution may work, this is, as I say, it's been debated, but there seems now to be some gathering amount of evidence for it, is that there's also a bias in nature towards efficient organization. And so, and for example, it's given the example, so what's the chance of a monkey typing out 0101 a million times? Um, Or a piece of code which says type zero one a million times that's about 30 characters 25 characters or something so a short description based around a repetition or a symmetry is much more likely to arise in the random sequence than zero one zero one zero one a million times so um, and and there's modeling of a lot of computer simulations have been done recently modeling that um using uh, protein, the generating proteins from amino acids and stuff. So it's beginning to think that it's not just the survival bias in terms of the female swallow preferring her pretty mate with the symmetric tail, but also a, a bias because symmetry and patterns, little groups of patterns, is a much more efficient way to yeah. get things done than just completely asymmetric random very good. Um, before we get into the maths, just to go back to the female swallow, do we know why the female swallow prefers that symmetrical tail? For the female swallow, is it the predictability? Does the female swallow see danger in in the unsymmetric, in in the chaos? If you know what I mean. So, so is the is the unsymmetric tail as disturbing as as the shadow of a crow if you know what I mean like is it predictability do we know that well um I I love birds column but but I I guess I can't really say what's (laughs) in the the female swallow's head but at the same time I guess we can I mean um there have been experiments done actually about the the whole issue of symmetry and how is it a preference or is it somehow hardwired um, and I, there's recent research from about 2013 on small children, which I found interesting, that um, past a certain age, let's say past the age of 10, adults and children do have a symmetric bias. So if you show them all images of faces, they tend to look longer or prefer express preferences for those with more symmetry. So I guess 
you could put the swallow in there too, looking at pictures of the mate and saying, I like the ones with more symmetry. Possibly what they're pick, people are picking up on is maybe, you know, a rigor of, you know, a physical, I'm, I'm not sure, but but whatever, that bias is definitely there. That preference is definitely okay. there. Now that seems to break down for very small kids. So around the age of four and five, they're not picking up a preference for this symmetry in the same way. But nonetheless, despite the fact that the preference hasn't come in at this very early age for young children, they're noticing nonetheless that the young children will definitely spend more time looking at symmetrical patterns compared to asymmetrical ones. So they're more focused on the symmetry while not yet expressing preferences for it. So whether it's there's something there between a focus and a preference. So it's hard to know. I mean, what is it called? I mean, you know, is it culturally, is it somehow hardwired? But I put the swallow in the same, yeah. I put the swallow exactly in the same category as ourselves. And maybe it's because we have two eyes and the brain just is taking, you know, in, uh, taking images in from two two cones and it's easier to mix things, I don't know, that are, are roughly the same. Uh, I'm out of my depth on that one, definitely, just in terms of placing myself in the lived experience of the female swallow. Getting into... Um, the maths aspect of things where does where where where's the interesting where symmetry turns up you know that that you know you you work in a particular area and you've you, you have the benefit now i suppose of you know um uh, whatever 20 years of looking at lots of different areas of maths is symmetry one of those things that crops up in surprising places well, symmetry has been around, as I say, from the ancient Babylonians, 2000 BC, and it, it is literally everywhere. But what's actually interesting is that the mathematics of symmetry, which um, didn't actually arise from the symmetry itself, believe it or not, uh, or it didn't arrive in any of the obvious ways. It didn't arise from people looking at the very um manifestations of symmetry in nature or in art, which goes back thousands of years, it actually arose um, from solving algebraic equations. Um, It it arrived in the mid 19th century, around the 1830s. Um, And there's there's, there's lots of stories there as well. It was a young Frenchman, um, Galois, and he was interested in why, for example, um, we all know that you can solve a quadratic equation. Anybody from secondary school onwards knows that if you take a quadratic equation, ax squared plus bx plus c, then the roots of it, we all have the quadratic formula, minus b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac over 2a gets you the two roots. And we all know that. And actually that was known 2000 BC, so 4,000 years ago. And it took a while, but um, so in other words, you could find the roots of a quadratic just using a square root and then the coefficients. And then um, later it was shown you could do the same for cubic. So in other words, if you had an X cubed, so if you started with an AX cubed and then had squares and stuff, you could do the same. You could find the roots um, using a cube root and a square root. And you could do the same for power four, AX to the four. You could find the roots, the four roots, using um, a cube root, a square root. And we don't actually need the fourth root because to take a fourth root is just taking the square root and then take the square root again. And for a long time, so that's been known for over 4,000 years, but for a long time, people couldn't do the same with fifth root. So if you have 
x to the 5 plus x to the 4 plus x cubed plus x squared plus x plus 1 to give one simple example. But whatever they were doing fell apart here. And it took almost 4,000 years. People, they knew it wouldn't work, but they didn't know why it didn't work. And um, two mathematicians, Ruffini and Abel, showed that it didn't work for polynomials, that we call those polynomials of degree five. It didn't work, and they figured out kind of why it wouldn't work for that one. But it took a young French mathematician, um, Galois, really to say why what had worked for 4,000 years for the squares, cubes, and uh, quadra uh, power fours fell apart for five and higher degrees. And he showed that um, he introduced a concept. So what he started looking at, he started looking at the roots and realizing that there was something symmetric about the roots, that it was something to do about you could shift the roots, you could move the roots one to the other, you could permute them. And he started looking at these permutations. So, for example, rotations that we were speaking about earlier of the circle. So doing the same thing with the five roots are um, and he categorized that as permutation groups. And that introduced this whole concept of a group, a group of transformations. And that's the mathematics of symmetry. And so it came from solving equations, which I find interesting for so many different reasons. First of all, Galois did that when he was a teenager, mm. um, which is pretty impressive. And in fact, he was he was a revolutionary. He, I mean, at the time there was many revolutions in 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 France. The kings were getting deposed, and a new king. And he was a part of the I think it was called the armed uh, militia of the guard. And so he was in and out of prison. He was arrested, and in fact, he, his his writings were preserved. When he sat down one night, he was having a duel the next morning. He was challenged to a duel. Um, by Russian roulette, uh, two pistols, one with bullet, the other without. And um, in case something might happen the following day, he sat down, wrote a letter and enclosed his three manuscripts, a very small amount of material, um, and was killed the next morning at the age of 20. And his work um, was uh, eventually, 14 years later, was published by another mathematician, and Herman Weil in the 20th century said that judged that that letter and the few manuscripts that he wrote the night before he was killed in the duel at the age of 20, if it was to be judged on the profundity of the ideas and the sheer novelty of what the guy had done, this is the most important piece of writing in the history of literature of mankind, which is pretty impressive. It is. And, and, and he... He had that mathematician's curiosity of, you know, the natural inclination. We know it. We know one. We know two. We know three. We know four. Keep going to five and six. Um, in the midst of revolution, and maybe maybe there's certain clarity of thinking happens if you think you're going to die the following day. Maybe that's what distilled it so perfectly into those into those notes that he produced on the night. Uh, he had literally. He, he needed to get his message out there. It's an amazing, um, an amazing story. Is what they discovered then, did that take maths into a different way of thinking about shapes and dimensions and all of that? And, and symmetry aided that. Is Did that represent a change where, because you're starting off with equations, which I presume they might have been using to solve for, is it liquid or heat or things like that, like they, they probably were dealing with engineering issues or something? 
And did this take it into another area that was completely new? This was absolutely and utterly transformative in the history of mathematics because what he introduced there, separate entirely from what he was trying to do, which was solve equations or explain why equations couldn't be solved, was he introduced this concept of a group. Um, And a group is where you look at the collection of mappings that leaves something invariant, leaves it fixed. And so it's it's got four simple properties. So, for example, like if you have a rotation and a reflection which leaves something fixed, then one after the other will still leave it fixed. So it's really very, very four simple properties. But he introduced the concept of a group and later um, something called uh, a Galois group. But then that that it took about 20 years, actually, to maybe the mid 19th century, around the 1850s, before this really became widespread. But it has transformed every area of mathematics. So now when if I were to speak, um, let's say, to a Leaving Cert class about symmetry, I probably would even give them the definition of a group. Groups actually used to be on the Leaving Cert. They're not anymore, but they used to be there. So it's not a hugely complicated idea, but it was transformative. Uh, so for you know we've been looking at symmetry for these thousands of years almost 4000 years and suddenly we have this concept of a group and group theory then if you like filters back into all of the areas of biology and um study of crystals and chemistry it led to classificate cr- the whole area of crystallography um physics everywhere so absolutely and utterly transformative picking up on uh, the on physics does uh, and I don't know whether it's also in relation to groups, but does symmetry turn up then in like as we go smaller and smaller into the subatomic particles and spin and like some of the fundamental laws of the universe? Is is that was that the start of the once you once you change the way you're looking at um, tiny things in physics uh, and start introducing the concept of symmetry? Did that lead to things that we know now about like quantum mechanics and all that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, the symmetry is fundamental in physics. Um, uh, In 1918, for example, a a mathematician called Emmy Noether, probably, I I would say, probably the most famous female mathematician ever, um, proved a theorem, which you can state very simply. And it says that if you have, um, for example, equations Uh, We call them Hamiltonian systems. But if you have a Hamiltonian system or an equation that would arise in in mechanics, then any form of symmetry, any form of continuous symmetry has to correspond. There has to be some kind of quantity which is conserved as a result of that. So any observed symmetry of the system leads to leads to a conserved quantity. So um, we get conservation um, conservation of energy, for example, is due to the fact that we have um, time translation as a symmetry. In other words, the laws of physics don't change in time. So that's an invariance. And that leads to the classical concept of conservation of energy. Uh, Conservation of momentum. We know that the laws of physics hold at different places in space, the same laws hold here and there. So that's translation in space. That's a symmetry. That symmetry leads to the principle of conservation of momentum. We have certain rotational symmetries. Certain things are invariant under rotating around an axis. And this rotational symmetry, continuous symmetries show up as conservation of angular momentum. So this was a, a, a very important result um, 
in the early 20th century, 1918, which has had huge ramifications. So that that invariance, that um, things not changing, that becomes key to uh, a human being with a pencil and a paper sitting 13 billion light years in time and distance away from the Big Bang. Like once, if you know yes. things haven't changed, yeah. uh, that allows, that gives you just so much knowledge of something that happened that you couldn't possibly, I mean, obviously there's experiments and there's light being emitted and all that, but but having the maths of it and knowing that certain things haven't changed, does that help prove data that you're getting? Like if you're looking at a supernova it, and it you're getting little, you know, you're like you're getting little bits of in, of experimental information, and you know from the maths that there's symmetry there, that allows you to prove something that happened miles and light years away. Well, it 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 establishes principles which underlie all of physics. So what was interesting about um, what I mentioned with Galois in the 1830s or Emmy Neusser in, in early 1918, um, these were uh, these were essentially abstract mathematicians. Um, working on pure mathematics, but the ramifications of the symmetry showing up in the mathematics are absolutely enormous. A, a very simple word, a very, I have to say something about Emmy Neuther column because yeah. she was just so outstanding. Um, she grew up in Germany and at that stage wasn't, you couldn't have a female enrolled uh, in the university to study mathematics. And so in fact, she qualified first as a teacher of French and English, but her love was mathematics. Um, and despite the fact that she wasn't entitled to be a student of mathematics, she got special permission to attend lectures and eventually in 1907 got her PhD. Um, and she was lecturing at the University of Erlangen where she'd studied, but because she was a woman, she couldn't be paid. So she worked for seven years as a lecturer in Erlangen without pay. Invited by David Hilbert, one of the most famous mathematicians at the time and since, in fact, at the University of Göttingen, probably the centre of learning in, uh, at that time in the world, certainly of mathematics. So she went and she taught there again. Um, she was not allowed to be paid. She lectured for four years in Göttingen with no pay. In fact, she couldn't even lecture under her own name because at the time the philosophy department said uh, essentially a um, I'm not exactly quoting, but the philosophy department objected on the grounds that how terrible would it be for young men coming back from the war to be faced with the prospect of, of having to be taught by a woman. So um, she just had this astonishing resilience to continue despite all of this. She was the first woman ever to give a talk at the International Congress of Mathematics in 1932. And at that point, she had been um, given a position in Göttingen, but had to leave in 33 because she was Jewish. And of course, uh, under uh, when the Nazis arrived in 33, uh, you couldn't uh, have a Jewish professor at the university. So she went to the States and unfortunately died um, two years later as a young, uh, in her early 50s. Um, but a really astonishing uh, personal story amidst this pure mathematics having this huge ramifications for physics, uh, you know, on the study of symmetry. So I know that's a digression. but No, a, a very welcome digression. And again, uh, just and sorry, just one, just one yeah. more column as well. One really kind of shocking, horrifying thing is that she was the first woman to give a plenary lecture at the ICM in, in, in 32 and it was almost 60 years later before the ICM invited another woman to give a plenary lecture. The next oh one was 1990. Yeah. Shame. So it's so lots of lots of interesting things happening in the background as well. 
And also just an example of how if you shut out half the population's brains from contributing in any area and especially abstract maths, what you're going to miss out on, you know. Uh, so in so these are examples of people who are working on pure maths, maths for maths sake, the next step because the previous step has been proven and then people go, okay, we know that. What about this? And then it turns up in all these places. Other places it turns up, um, you mentioned chemistry and crystallography. Uh, again, is it the efficiency thing that crystals like symmetry? Um, well, I mean, crystals I mean, crystals form a three-dimensional lattice, essentially. And I know that you had, a, I know that you spoke to Rachel Quinlan from University of Galway about origami shapes. And so, in other words, this is the art of the Japanese art of folding paper to make these beautiful shapes. And there's a classification for that based on the symmetry and they're called the wallpaper groups. Well, it turns out for chemistry, when you're looking at crystals, um, you can look at the symmetry of the underlying lattice and it's classified in, it's kind of similar to what happens with the origami. There, there's 17 different kind of groups and in uh, three dimensions, it's also um, based on the symmetry, but you get 230 different types of crystalline structures. Okay. Um, which, uh, it, it, so it's it's really just one dimensional higher than the origami that Rachel was speaking about. And you'd think that there'd be infinite ways of having crystals structured. It's it's weirdly small and definite, isn't it? That That you have a number for how crystals are stacked in as far yeah. as we know that i guess the the universe that ties back to what i was saying earlier about this um um work on evolution where they're saying that you would expect if it's just entirely random you would expect all of this asymmetry and while there is plenty of asymmetry we're getting far too much symmetry so yeah. um so symmetry is somehow a recurring theme no matter where you go so insofar as mathematicians can ever say they're absolutely definite about anything, and indeed chemists and physicists, what they can say is, look, it's too much of a coincidence that things tend to this, uh, this shape and this symmetry. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, uh, what kind of stuff is, in, and we spoke earlier about new research. This is, this is in the area of uh, evolution. Where, where next for symmetry? Where do you think people will be looking? Uh, will they start looking into the brain in terms of symmetry? You know, as we as we seek to emulate the brain, which seems a chaotic, spongy lump of cells, and we're trying to build AIs and all that, does, again, like Pi, does symmetry keep turning up in that, when we're pushing boundaries in that area? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, no question. I mean, um we're all talking at the moment about ChatGPT and uh, AI and um, deep learning, which is the kind of the cutting edge of AI at the moment. Um, it is a lot of it is built built on um, looking at modeling the brain, so looking at how the brain works. So. Um, it's actually the idea is basically that it's modeled on all the neurons. So it's you build neural nets based on abstract models of the neurons in the brain. And they build it in such a way that the 
initially all the neurons are identical. Okay, and then later you get these specialized connections, different connections, depending on, on what learning is actually happening. And it just occurred to me also when I was thinking a few things I've learned, I've learned some interesting things myself in doing this podcast, which is quite exciting. But I actually happen to have a son who's working in, in AI and in deep learning. So I'm getting bits there as well. But we start out actually as a single celled organism, as a zygote, where all the cells are identical. And for the first two weeks, the cells are growing and reproducing and they're increasing in number, still all identical. And about three weeks in, um, by switching on different bits of DNA in different cells, the cells start to specialize. So then you get muscle or bone or blood cells. And something simpler ha similar happens with connections in the brain between all of the neurons. And that's what's modeled in these neur neural nets. Um, and I didn't find out until yesterday, actually, I only realized this, but uh, there was a very, there was an architect, Christopher Alexander, who published a book uh, purely to do with architecture. It's called the pattern. Um, I think it's called pattern language, towns, buildings, construction. Um, and the idea was that you, you, you have small tested symmetric units. So, um, efficient, well-tested symmetric units. So like the zygote, all identical cells, like the neurons, mm. all starting out identical. And then you kind of modularize it up. So you make the complexity by m putting these together in, in ways, in efficient ways. And um, this, this book and the work of Christopher, Christopher Alexander actually became very important in software engineering, software programming. And has been somehow adopted or fed into the field now of artificial learning. And, uh, and the work that I mentioned earlier on evolution, that's also connected um, with the, the people who are looking at that. It's actually a theoretical phys physicist from Oxford is one of the people doing that type of research, but it's also tying into work on AI modeled on this kind of concept of symmetric neurons um, and then the specialism occurs later. So you have these tested symmetric units, which, if you like, are then modularized up to make very, very complex systems. So the planning of a town, a town, a town is laid out and then it, it's laid out with these modular areas. But complexity comes from the interactions between people living in different parts of the town. Is, that, is there a kind of a mapping between urban planning and brain planning? Well, there's, I mean, certainly um, it, it sounds, it, it, I was very surprised to hear this because you would have thought, I mean, an architect publishing on, 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 on town planning and uh, you wouldn't necessarily think, but it fed, because it was re basically saying you take these kind of well-tested, so I'm, I'm going to call them symmetric patterns, but patterns of if something is, a small unit is very well-tested for how to build a room, how to build a house, how to build a street, how to build a community, how to build. So this idea that you take these small units and then you can scale it at any level, if you like. Okay. And this fed into software engineering, but is, is also feeding into AI. Um, I don't know, will AI have to reckon with the complexities of the planning permission system, though? That's probably one <laughs> variable that uh, might need another another bit of study. Um, before we go, uh, just because I I, um, I love hearing about wor Matt's words and Matt's that I've never heard before, and I know it's probably too hard for my brain to uh, conceptualize, but on your Wikipedia page, it says that you do things like 
manifolds and Banach spaces. Is it possible to explain to an idiot what a manifold is or, or a Banach space? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Take, take me briefly into the <laughs> into the esoteric world. It's not that esoteric, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's just that you haven't heard it before. I think it's in a way it's quite simple. We live on the surface of the earth. It's a sphere, roughly speaking. Um, on the other hand, if you want to drive to Tipperary, you're not going to pull out your globe. You're going to pull out the page. Well, let's pretend you don't have GPS. You're going to pull out the page of your atlas and you're going to be perfectly happy following the flat page when we all know the, 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 the earth is curved. So your flat page is a two-dimensional uh, approximation to what's happening on the earth. You're ignoring the curvature. Okay, so in fact, what we do is we take the globe, the the earth, and we make an atlas. We all have the atlases from geography in primary school, full of the flat pages, giving us different parts of the globe. A manifold is nothing. It's exactly the same. It's just now suppose you want to look at higher dimensional objects. Uh, And the first thing that you don't want to be bothered by are on very large scale. You have lots of, for example, think of the earth, the curvature of the earth. Now, because the Earth is roughly spherical, the curvature is still pretty uniform, but it's still curving. Um, The same thing happens if you move up in higher dimensions. You have structures that might be nice and flat. Think of R3. R3, the space that we live in, three dimensions, but they're flat. It's not curved. The axis, the three axes are not curved. They're all straight. So that's a flat space. Well, suppose you took lots of, if you like, local bits of that flat space and you glued them together in some complicated mathematical way. And by the time you were finished gluing, that object was no longer flat Mm. because uh, it would have curvatures, maybe not even uniform curvatures, different curvatures in different directions. And that's exactly what a manifold is. It's something that might be complicated in higher dimensions with curving in different ways in different directions in an infinite number of different directions, maybe. But to the, if you were a, 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 an organism or a thing living on that, locally, just like you'd say from here to Tipperary is flat, you could say, well, this bit of that structure is like R3 or R4. The axes that I'm dealing with are all flat. So it's a flat approximation, if you like, to something that might be quite complicated and have these complicated shapes. That's essentially what a manifold is. So think of globe to atlas. Globe to atlas is exactly what you're doing with the manifold. Very good. Uh, And then uh, what's a Banach space? A Bonnock space, Bonnock's, Bonnock is a mathematician, Polish mathematician who, who did wonderful things in functional analysis. So he gave his name to a class of spaces. Um, in fact, there were very common spaces in mathematics. For I mentioned Hilbert earlier. There's also a Hilbert space, which is also a Bonnock space. It's a more specialized form. But these spaces, for example, the Hilbert spaces, which are also Bonnock spaces, crop up in physics everywhere. So if you want to model, for example, um, 1932, there was a paper, Jordan von Neumann Wigner, on how to mathematically model the axioms of a a kind of a a bolt, nuts and bolts view of what was happening in quantum mechanics from a mathematical point of view. And they would look at these bonnock spaces. So they're actually quite concrete. So once again... um, simplification and and um make refining of things that appear chaotic 
in order to operate on them uh, and then learn about what would appear to be almost too complicated to, for the human brain to deal with. But for a mathematician, it's a device to understand the, something that's incredibly complicated. Yeah, probably. I, I will, it depends. I mean, uh, probably all of mathematics is, is really just a seeking to simplify things. Like, mm. as I said, you can look at lots of different symmetries, but then realize actually they're all the same. They're all, it's essentially the same thing happening in all the different places. So an awful lot of mathematics, certainly my own mathematics, as little as it is uh, in the grand scheme of all those names that I've mentioned. But it, it's really about trying to figure out how you can view it in a simpler way. So I noticed, Colm, as well, that I'm, am I allowed to correct you? Would that be a terrible thing to do? Uh, but please do, chaotic, please do. You're using the word chaotic when really chaotic has a specific meaning in physics, whereas I think really what you're saying is complicated. Yeah. Our meaning is complicated. So, but I would say that a lot of mathematics, I hope that's okay. That's, that's okay. all right, yeah. <laughs> I don't like to give a rap on the knuckles. At, um, no, no, uh, I, I take all, I take all raps on the knuckles, would, yeah. I would say that a lot of mathematics is is actually trying to find the simplicity in complicated what what may initially appear as a very complicated kind of structure. Uh, that's a great way to finish. Thank you so much, uh, Pauline Mellon, for coming into the function room. That's fantastic. Thank you, Colm. I learned lots myself. That was Pauline Mellon there. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the podcast on all the platforms. Please do share and tell others about it. Give us a review if the mood takes you. I find five to be the most symmetrically pleasing of the ratings. Until next time, bye-bye.